Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm really pleased to say, to give us her insight, Kathy Fisher joins us here in the New York studio, Bernstein Head of Wealth and Investment Strategies. Kathy, great to catch up with you. I'm just wondering what you're telling clients at the moment as you see the big numbers, the big price action of the last 24 hours. How do you keep them calm? Well, think about it. When the trade talks first surfaced in March, we all thought that this would be a little bit of posturing and, and this would blow over and the numbers were not too large. But now things have escalated and we have to recognize that people are trying to to connect the dots and figure out, will this create a headwind to earnings? Will this create some damage to capital spending as companies try to think through what it means? And it's early. We don't know yet. But you can see why that is indeed causing markets to step back a bit. And we expect this volatility to continue. But that doesn't mean you get out of stocks. It means you are yeah. careful. It means that with active management, we can try to position our portfolios appropriately to focus on companies that could be less affected. But I, I do caution that we know that the broad-based impact, if psychology is affected in a negative way, you know, could 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 be real. But again, companies are in very good shape today. The economy is strong, so we're not in any way suggesting clients change their allocations. It's hard to digest news flow when you don't know what the news is. And um, there right. were several reports about restrictions to Chinese investments. Then the Treasury Secretary went out onto Twitter um, yesterday morning and said the statement that will come out will not be specific to China, but to all countries that are trying to steal our technology. Then the trade advisor, Peter Navarro, over at the White House, he gave an interview to CNBC and he said the followings. The, uh, the whole idea that we're putting investment restrictions on the world, please discount that. There's no plans to impose investment restrictions on any countries that are interfering in any way with our country. That is not the plan. Um, Kathy, how do you know what's going on? And, and if I can interrupt, John, what was amazing about what you just said is moments later, the White House came back and backpedaled from what Mr. Navarro said. I mean, moments after he made those comments. On so it's television. very difficult, Tom, just to have exactly. a clue what is going on and exactly. what we're going to learn this Stunning. week. Stunning. Um, Kathy, and I thoughts? do. Yeah, I do think that um, the, the market has accepted that there is. Let's gently say conflicting comments coming out of of Washington, and that's been going on for some time. This is not new, and therefore there may have been a little more complacency because there have been all these conflicting statements. But it, as I said before, what what we do see now is that there is some actual damage starting to come from these tariffs. And that's that's the reality, is what is the actual financial impact of some of these decisions that are being made? Well, let's be clear here, the real financial impact, not so much here in the United States, but abroad, Chinese equities, the Shanghai Composite, into a bear market. We know how sensitive the administration in China is to financial markets. And I just wonder whether the Chinese actually have the stomach to really take on a trade war, um, Kathy, do you see the Chinese having the stomach to do that? Yeah, and uh, and as you know, the Chinese have talked about other things that they can do besides trade wars. In particular, they can halt licenses, they can slow down imports, they can do all sorts of things at the docks, and and there's and of course the Chinese have 
currency issues, and they have the fact that they own many U.S. treasuries as well. So they, they do have um, multiple levers to pull, but, but some of them could be quite consequential, and we aren't expecting there to be dramatic change because of that, but certainly um, it, is, it is tough for all parties involved. Remember, the global economy has grown in recent decades because of an improvement in free global trade. Yeah. So to hinder that becomes a very big global issue, not just for the two countries we're talking about here. Very much so, but maybe more of a problem for the Chinese. Yes. Um, I, I fail to see why the Chinese would interfere with the docks. I fail to see why the Chinese would get involved in, in factories on the mainland because they are so vulnerable to the direction of capital flows. And the last thing that they want to do is start spooking potential investment in the country. I mean, what's the incentive for them to do that, Cathy? Well, I don't think it's so much of an incentive, but it's. I do think there's a. You, there has to be some way to get back and say we are not going to just take whatever comes our way. So I do think you're seeing a lot more discussions between other countries about how they, they can work together. And as you know, China has many other trading partners. So there's lots of discussions going on behind the scenes. We have to recognize that. So you say stay exposed to risk assets here in the United States? We do say stay exposed. And um, as you know, because because earnings have been good, um, valuations mm. have actually come down, right? The S&P is trading around 16 times earnings now, which is certainly not far from average. So even though these these clouds are right. here, we would certainly not tell, ex, want our clients to get out of stocks. Remember when we used to rotate? Mm. We'd rotate. We're rotating into this. We're rot Are we going to get back to rotating? So rotating is a, is a is um, something that people have talked about for years, as you said. And rotating. actually, yesterday you you saw we did actually see the Fang stocks lose some lump some steam. And the question is, did they rotate into something else? And it doesn't look that way. It looks yeah. like there was just a little bit of sell off yesterday. But that's one day. I mean, like over three months or over eight months, do we still rotate? Yeah, I can't remember when um, we did. It isn't. It is. It, remember, and part of it's part of the reason why not is because everything is so interconnected. It's very rare now that you have one industry or sector that people think is immune to whatever buffeting factors. But the, the split in technology kind of made a whole lot of sense up until yesterday, Kathy. Um, the chip stocks come under pressure because of what may or may not happen with China and the internet companies outperform um, many of those companies with really strong secular growth stories. Did we just throw everything out yesterday and just a broad-based risk-averse day? I think yesterday everybody threw everything out, but also it's always normal to sell your winners when things get jittery. So you would expect some of the stocks that have done the best to sell off the most when there's a, a brash sell-off. Does it raise any questions about valuations in certain pockets of the equity market? It, it does. Um, although, you know, you know, the nice thing about some of the stocks that have done well is that their valuations are not that out of line, whether it's an Apple or a Facebook. They are, you know, given how strong the earnings are, that's a, it's a different story perhaps for a Netflix. Yeah. And the corporate bid as well. Just as a final question, the corporate bid for many of these companies now out of the market because we're so close to earnings season. How critical do you think that was? Um, yesterday and going on, going into the next couple of weeks? Well, there's always technical factors, so I'm not going to try to guess on which one weighs sure. more. Sure. We'd like think, you to. I do think the bigger issue now, though, it, the trade issue is, is the bigger one by far because um, it, this is this is significant. This is really throwing a wrench in what, yeah. people, what everything has driv been driven by in recent so decades. you predict there'll be more Harley Davidsons? I I. I'm not going to predict that, but I do think that's what people are going to be looking for and mm -hmm. looking very carefully. Um, and if you if if you're a yeah. company and you have any of these things on the margin, I would indeed expect to see some more of them. Yes. Kathy Fisher, thank you so much. For thank Bernstein. you. Greatly appreciate it. Really, really well timed here. 
we bring in our next guest, a Nobel laureate. Yeah, and Yale Professor of Economics, Robert Schiller. Professor, always great to catch up with you. A student of economic history, not just me, but you still, and I guess we always will be. Um, What would you compare the current era in history to? Any parallels? Well, you can't parallel everything. You know, there's so many things going on at any one time. But one thing that comes to my mind is 1930. That's the year of the Smoot-Hawley tariff. Uh, President Hoover signed it into law. It was a big increase in tariffs, and it launched a trade war. Uh, by 1932, Hit, uh, I said Hitler, Hoover was, was uh, arguing that there wouldn't be a trade war. But he gave it up. And you know what? Those tariffs came down. Uh, I think that uh, we learned a lesson from Smoot-Hawley. We have to remember it again. We have to read history. So Smoot-Hawley, I I remember the average tariff being something around 40% across all goods. I mean, Professor, we're nowhere near to that, are we? Well, we've come down. See, the thing that happened is uh, that that tariff began to be viewed as a sign of grotesque lack of enlightenment, that uh, you punish your neighbor, beggar thy neighbor was the term. Yeah. They'll fight back. And, and you know, it was part of the process that brought us World War II. It, it, it generated such a conflictual and hostile atmosphere uh, that uh, it wasn't a good idea. Admittedly, it was a higher tariff. Uh, well, you know, uh, we don't know where Trump would like to go, but I think he's probably scaling it down in terms of the public reaction, and will continue to. The starting point is different, as is the goal. Um, the ultimate goal is to get the Chinese to remove the barriers to entry. Um, how successful are we likely to be in that ambition? Well, we have an existing structure called the World Trade Organization, and the U.S. under um, President Obama filed complaints with the WTO. And that was in process, but it didn't fix the problem. So we have a big problem, uh, admittedly, that uh, Trump is right about, of international diplomacy, that the World Trade Organization doesn't have enough teeth to, uh, to yeah. really fix the problem. Uh, but I don't know, you know, uh, the experiment that we're going through now, which, what, what strikes me about it is the tone is so right. angry that I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't think that Americans in the long run want this kind of angry international uh, arena. We we could go for hours here, John. I thought those questions were great. But John Farrell and I interviewed David Blanchflower of Dartmouth the other day. And I want you to follow up with that. Professor Blanchflower said, we're not fully employed. Every politician, not every, most politicians, most market people tell us we are fully employed. You got a piece of chalk in your hand at Yale and you're lecturing. Are we fully employed? Well, we have a lot of people who've left the labor force, I suppose. But see, unemployment is rather hard to define because it's a matter of intention. If you've left the labor force and consider yourself retired, that's not unemployed. But what is is your real feeling about that? Maybe you left and retired early because it didn't look good. I I think there's a certain fuzzy... uh, He may be right that it's not as strong and as good as it appears through the national statistics. Uh, when we look at this, and, and to bring it back to John's observation of history, where is this nation after the election? If we assume Mr. Trump is one term, maybe he's two term, who am I to say? But is is President Trump in his movement of populism, is it a one-off or does it endure? 
Well, that is an important question. Now, I'm going to focus that in to uh, look at his tax cuts. Notably, the corporate profit tax cut uh, brought the top statutory rate down from 35% to 21%. That's a huge tax cut. So I want to know, is that going to last? Is it going to be reversed by subsequent governments? Uh, that is the big question when you're looking at valuations in the market. Mm -hmm. The market has bought in that these are permanent cuts. My, nothing is permanent, of course, but my guess is that this is a cut that will last. Even if Trump and the Republicans lose their control that they now have, uh, I, I will bet that uh, we won't see it going back up. Uh, Bob Schiller, thank you so much. Professor of Economics at Yale University and, of course, a prize taker at Stockholm or Oslo, wherever they do the Nobel uh, Prize. Robert Schiller of Yale. It is a good time to speak to David Goldman. That can be about derivative mathematics and debt defeasement, or it can be about China. He is a student of China. He takes a long view. He is, of course, writing in Asia Times and with Macro Strategy LLC. David Goldman, wonderful to catch up with you again. In one of your latest essays, you talk about how you need to speak to those opposite you, you use the example of scientists in World War II, where we took the German scientists, including Werner von Braun, over to make things go in science in America. We're not speaking to China, are we? Are we? What will the price President Trump pays? China at this point believes that the United States, in the person of Peter Navarro, for example, wants to stop China from realizing its uh, economic ambitions, and this it considers a repeat of the opium war demands of 1840. They will hunker down. The problem that Trump addresses, which is real, is that we're losing our technological edge. The solution to it is not to try to stop China from developing its technological edge, because we can't. The solution is to do much better than they can. And my first proposal to the administration is organize a systematic brain drain, pick off China's best talents, get them to the United States working for us, because that's where the preponderance of highly educated uh, tech professionals is going to come from. Well, that's what we did with Brexit. We saw Brexit. We said, bring John Farrell over to America. <laughs> it was a brain drain out of uh, the United Kingdom. I don't, John, I don't have that John brain Farrell with David you know, Goldman, who did whom a favor there is? <laughs> David, I hope you've got my back here. I do hope you have. Um, the technology transfer issues, the issues around intellectual property. The president has a point here, doesn't he, David? Oh, absolutely he does. China now pays more for IP than any other country in the world. $25 billion a year. It paid virtually nothing 10 years ago. Probably should be three or four times that. But even if China paid top dollar for everything they took from us instead of stealing some and paying for others, we'd still have a problem that China will eventually leapfrog us if we remain stagnant. And the problem is our rate of innovation, particularly in anything to do with manufacturing, has come to a halt. We're very good at apps, but we're not very good at manufacturing. That's all gone overseas. And unless we reverse that, as the president says, we're in big trouble. But we're not going to do that by 
preventing, for example, ZTE from buying Qualcomm chips. They'll just have a crash program to produce their own chips, which is what they're doing right now, by the way. Uh, Huawei now has an unlimited budget from the Chinese government to produce substitutes. It will be more expensive. You'll be, you'll be creating inefficient dual supply chains. Yeah, That's bad for profitability. It's bad for the world economy, but China will do it. The trick is for us to leapfrog China, turn some of their industries into the equivalent of eight-track tape players by creating new ones. So, David, the Chinese brazenly unveiling the Made in China 2025 goals, and I just wonder whether the United States can get Europe and the rest of the world on side to really sort of break down what the Chinese are doing, how they're subsidising it, the barriers to entry that they'll put around that effort as well, and, and whether the world acting together can really stop that from happening. Well, you can't stop the Chinese from using the Chinese economic model to try to advance their industry. But the weakness of the Chinese model is you put vast amounts of social resources into existing technologies. Uh, Our trick, our advantage is innovation. We want to create new technologies. For example, uh, 20 years from now, we're not going to be paying $10 $10 billion to build a fabrication plant for semiconductors. There will be different physical processes which will reduce the cost by 80 or 90%. We should have a Manhattan Project program to replace the existing chip fab technologies. Let mm-hmm. the Chinese build massive chip plants, then go in and do something entirely new and bankrupt them. That's what basically what we did to Russia during the Cold War. Can we incentivize? manufacturing investment in America. Can we use your global Wall Street, David Goldman, and tax credits and investment incentives to keep the investment here to create American jobs? Oh, sure we can. I mean, we did it in the, during the Reagan administration. We were spending about 1.3, 1.4% of GDP on fundamental research sponsored by the federal government. And there was a public-private partnership where DARPA or other government agencies, NASA, would fund the basic research, and then companies would commercialize it. That's where we've got lasers, uh, inexpensive and fast microchips, flat panel displays, virtually everything that goes into the digital mm-hmm. economy then. Now we're spending roughly half that amount relative to GDP, and the president doesn't even have a science right. advisor in the White House. Well, so, yes, we've done it before. I was there in the Reagan administration. It worked fine then. Well, David, uh, not enough time today. Let's do it again. David Goldman uh, with Asia Weekly writing there. Uh, Greatly appreciated on uh, some interesting ways to engage with uh, China. Jane Foley with us at Rabobank. Uh, in London. Thrilled that she could be with us this morning as we look at the market turmoil. Green on the screen, as Karen uh, mentioned. But within that, Jane Foley, is foreign exchange's litmus paper. What is the dollar dynamics right now? What is the dollar bet that is out there? Well, 
You know, I'm still a dollar bull, and I think if we look at the uh, performance of the dollar since around about February, I think we can see it's, it's outperformed almost every market. It's outperformed the G10, it's outperformed all of Asia, all of uh, Latin, and, and almost all in Eastern Europe too. It's just the uh, uh, Ukrainian currency that has outperformed it. So we're looking at a very, very strong dollar, and I think there's two real reasons for that. First of all, we have the, the Federal Reserve. Of course, it's been tightening interest rates at a time when much of the rest of the, the G10 and central banks have been coming out and asserting that they're done yeah. credentials. So you have interest rate differentials. And then, of course, you have uh, that sparking this capital outflow from emerging markets back into G10, back into to the U.S., the U.S. dollar, and the environment that we have right now with right. trade tension is only reinforcing that risk aversion. We are hearing from different shops some bold calls on currency movements, which are almost all strong dollar and weaker other thing, including yen, some calls out from 110 out to 120. Do you have the same boldness at Rabobank? Not on, on the yen. Now, the, the, the dollar yen, if you like, is, is, is perhaps a little bit tougher in, in this environment where we have the dollar app performing. But generally speaking, you know, I would say that uh, it is the, the, the Japanese yen that is the more tried and tested uh, safe haven. Um, so in, in the sort of environment that you, you, you might see with, with trade wars, then you'd accept the yen to, to strengthen as well. But I think, you know, there's a couple of things which have perhaps undermined the yen when it comes to the U.S. dollar in the last few months. The first, of course, uh, interest rate differentials, the start of the year, many people thought that the Bank of Japan could be pushing away from its ultra-easy policy this year. That's been uh, uh, really pushed back against by the Bank of Japan now. Um, but the other thing is is the Korean situation. Of course, a year ago, we were very much in, in the midst of a, of, a, of a crisis there that people were worried about the, the missiles flying overhead above uh, Japan. Now, that particular threat has, has been lessened, and I think that has reduced some of that safe haven demand for the yen. But, you know, if we look ahead, trade tensions, they are something whereby uh, people do fly to uh, safe havens. And I think the yen, you know, will, will stand relatively firm in this environment, despite the interest rate differentials favoring the U.S. dollar. Jane Foley, the dollar versus the euro, what are your, what are your uh, perspective? What are the chances of the, of the dollar going to, let's say, 104, 105 against the euro in the next, let's say, year? Well, I would say that 104, 105 is still a long way away. Um, my uh, forecast is, is a much more moderate, you know, 112. Um, will it get down that far? Well, you know, never say never. But I, I think, you know, we've got to try and think of the factors that would really undermine mm -hmm. the euro. Because I think what we have at the moment, we have the story of dollar strength um, come, flow coming out of emerging markets back into the dollar. But, you know, I think, you know, some of this could have gone back into the euro if we were in the, the fundamentals that really characterize the euro in 2017 when when things were good for the euro growth was better than expected the politics were better than expected but since then we've got this much murkier euro story. well that's where i was going to go is i mean you know we've just had the election in in italy and uh you have a, a political uh crisis or at least a political confrontation that is building in germany um what and and then of course by 2019 you know britain is supposed to have exited the european union uh, what what kind of could you create a scenario in which you could be, see a big sell-off in the in the euro? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we've seen it before. Certainly, we just need to go back to the, to, to the Eurozone crisis. So, yes, we would have to have real concerns about the cohesion of the system, you know, to really set the euro tumbling. Interest rate differentials will, will, will set your dollar on, on a course lower. But I think we'd have to be really worrying about some degree of crisis for it to, to, to really accelerate. Now, if we think about what might happen, I mean, you're quite right. You've just pointed out that the weakness of, of Merkel, that could be a shock uh, for the euro. Well, these are things that actually people know about i mean i it's not i'm just reading off the headlines there are probably a lot of things we don't even know about well um i think when we get to october now this is going to be interesting because around about then we'll have the presentation of the italian budget now i think that could uh, really uh, release some strains again in the euro in the eurozone but having come through the crisis um having you know put measures in place to, to strengthen the coherence of the system, I'm not really envisaging that we could have another crisis, but I certainly do think that there will be factors out there which will make the market worried. So I do think that the euro is going lower against the U.S. dollar. I mean, I mean, this brings up a more general question from you know single point estimate on a given currency pair, which is Jane. We've all seen this before, which is a rationalization of weakening EM currencies, and every step of the way down, well-meaning people try to think through what it means and what it means for EM. And too often, it ends in some form of crisis. Why would we think otherwise this time? I suppose it's a crisis for whom? I mean, certainly if you look at some of the EMs, you look at Argentina, yes, you have a crisis. Um, will there be a crisis in Turkey in the, in the next five years? Maybe there will. So some countries certainly are a little bit more vulnerable uh, than others to uh, crisis. And certainly emerging markets, just by the very definition that they are emerging markets, are at more, more risk. Um, will the euro have another crisis? Uh, well, you know, certainly the, the European officials will be doing everything in, that, that can to try and avoid that with, with structural reforms. But clearly, this is a new currency. This is a new system. It is, it, it is very difficult to bring together uh, so many different countries and, and push them all yeah. together with one uh, currency. So th- there's going to be cracks and strains. And, and in the next recession, it, that will highlight the, the, the cracks and strains within the EMU. And, and, and certainly, you know, that's a, a situation which will certainly undermine the euro. So I do see going forward in the next yeah. 10, 15, maybe 50 years, bouts of, of, euro, strength, of, of euro weakness. Jane, thank you so much. Jane Foley, greatly appreciated from Rabobank with Perspective and Foreign Exchange. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.